Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome again to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to the show, uh, the show where we try to uh, give you the latest uh, pharmacotherapy-based information. Uh, so if it has to do with medications and, and sometimes even not medications, just medicine in general, we try to present the latest information that is evidence-based, can really impact your day-to-day practice, whether you be a pharmacist or a provider. So again, welcome to the show. Uh, today, we are going to talk in, about a, a paper that is more ICU-based. And this was uh, by request, a, a good friend of mine who is uh, doing an ICU fellowship uh, is, or a Palm Creek Care Fellowship, excuse me, is uh, kind of requested uh, some more ICU-based stuff to be of more impact to you. So uh, today's topic is a paper, fortunately, we had already read in my uh, medicine journal club uh, here at, at my hospital uh, uh, last month on restricted uh, fluids in septic shock in patients in the ICU. So background for those people who aren't crit- uh, critical care people, about uh, 20 years Years ago, I mean, it's probably been a little bit more, right around 2000. Uh, a landmark paper was published uh, by a guy named Manny Rivers, I believe, in the uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, that looked at giving basically tremendous amounts of fluids in patients in the early phases of, of sepsis. And that was in combination with, with giving, you know, uh, vasopressors at a certain point, et cetera, et cetera. And he actually, it was one of the few studies ever done in sepsis to find actually a, a statistically significant decrease in mortality. And it really became the cornerstone of, of septic shock treatment and uh, has really been used now for over over 20 years in that. And so, you know, that's that that's kind of the background of this. Now, of course, septic shock, despite some of the, the advances we've made, is a leading cause of death worldwide, as we all know. We, we, again, kind of front load people with intravenous fluids, and there's been some changes even in what type of intravenous fluids in the last, you know, 10 years or so. You know, when I came out of school, you know, we always knew we needed to use isotonic fluids. So normal saline was kind of, you know, de rigueur, if you will, for, for septic shock. But we also started to realize that giving that much chloride to patients because we were giving them so much fluid in, in the normal saline would actually lead to uh, a non-ion gap metabolic acidosis, which could lead to acute kidney injury. And so there's actually been a, a real shift in the last certainly five years uh, to, to going away from normal saline as the fluid of choice in these patients and going to lactated ringers. So that gives you an example that even though we're still giving people tons of fluid, you know, there, there's been some, some uh, uh, if, 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 if you don't mind the uh, pun, some fluidity in, 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 how, in how we treat uh, in how we treat septic shock patients. But one of the things we certainly noticed in, in in my hospital, and I, and I suspect many clinicians do too, is when you give that much fluid to people, if they turn around and they do really good, now you've probably fluid overloaded them. And it seems that, you know, in the later phases of us treating them in the ICU, we're forever putting these patients on diuretics to try and get the, all the fluid that we just gave them off, especially in older patients who may have heart failure or some other cardiovascular problem where they, or, or chronic kidney disease where they just can't tolerate that much fluid. So, you know, even though, you know, current surviving sepsis campaign guidelines suggest that that we should give a lot of fluids and, and the fluid amount is 30 mils per kilogram of body weight and as a one as at least a one-time dose uh you know the, it, i've certainly seen in my time as a pharmacist and i think most veteran clinicians have that this means we're often giving four plus liters to patients because as you've probably noticed as well the obesity epidemic is it is really hard and so you know 
we're giving total body weight. And so again, if somebody's 100 kilograms and you're giving 30 mils per kilogram, that's three liters of fluid as fast as you can get it in. And if you add that to all the drips they're getting and all the other stuff, we're just giving these people a ton of fluid. And there's been a few uh, retrospective studies have suggested that, yeah, in the early phase that might help, but in later phases, it's actually associated with harm, um, including, again, a worsening of kidney injury, perhaps because uh, we're having to give these people lots of diuretics, respiratory failure, which I've certainly seen where we fluid overloaded patients and they require lots of diuretics for respiratory failure. And one study even suggested a higher risk of death in patients who got excessive fluid. So these are all observational studies. And so a recent paper in the New England Journal of Medicine tried to kind of answer the question, you know, gee, you know, it, do we really need to really be giving 30 mils per kilogram uh, based on this, you know, study from over 20 years ago? It is worth noting that uh, no study has ever kind of replicated Manny Rivers' original paper. And some have argued that's because it would be unethical to do so, because again, we that's kind of the standard of care to not give somebody the standard of care without evidence that it, that it might be harmful was not really an ethical thing to do. But now that we have these observational studies that suggest there may be some harm associated, you know, and now the, the, the way is kind of clear to consider a, a randomized control trial and the classic study, conservative versus liberal approach to fluid treatment of septic shock and intensive care. Yeah, I, there, there are people whose entire job it is to come up with these acronyms for these studies was, was basically designed to evaluate restricted IV fluids versus usual care in patients with a septic shock in the ICU. So the study itself was an international uh, parallel group open label randomized control trial. Obviously, it'd be very difficult to do a, a blinded study this way, as you might imagine. Uh, it was done uh, in many uh, countries, not the United States, but but in, in many Western European countries, uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Italy, Italy the Czech Republic, the United Kingdom, and Belgium. So I would argue that on the whole, those patients and those ICUs are, are fairly similar to the ones that you're going to see in, in, in these patients uh, in the United States as well. The study was funded by Novo Nordisk Foundation, which I thought was kind of interesting. It had no role in the design or conduct of the, of the study, but you know, Novo doesn't really have a horse in this race. To my knowledge, they don't produce IV fluids. <laughs> they produce insulin mostly. So I don't that maybe this was just a foundational grant, but I thought that was quite interesting that, that, that Novo Nordisk actually said. Uh, actually sponsored the study. They uh, did have a, a data and safety monitoring board, which I think for a big multinational study like this would be pretty important. Um, as far as inclusion criteria, they it, this was all in adults, right? So we don't, this was not done in patients under age 18. They all had to have septic shock, which was kind of the standard definition of septic shock, which means either suspected or confirmed infection, uh, evidence of lactic acidosis, so at least a, a plasma lactate level of greater than two. And that, of course, indicates that, that the patient is being hypoperfused or not getting uh, oxygen to their tissues and the tissues are now producing lactate. Uh, they had to have a receipt of, of either ongoing infusion of vasopressor or inotropic agent. So in many cases in my hospital, that would be norepinephrine, but, but some other ones as well. And then receipt of at least one liter of intravenous fluids in the 24 hours prior to screen. So again, the point of the study was not to say we don't not use any fluids. We're just not going to try and flood patients with fluids, basically. Um, they had to have uh, the onset of shock within 12 hours before uh, screening and, and uh, entrance, entrance into the study. Uh, and they they encouraged trial sites to basically have a standardized screening system for everybody who kind of met the inclusion criteria. Exclusion criteria uh, was fairly broad, but in the end, the, the big exclusion criteria was uh, having septic shock for greater than 12 hours before being in the study, having no provision of consent, which is always kind of difficult in ICU studies because, again, unless the family is, you know, has a durable power of attorney, it's difficult to, to, to do consent. That's one of the reasons why ICU studies are always kind of hard to do. But uh, 50 pa patients in the study had life-threatening bleeding, so they had more hypovolemia 
ischemic shock, so they wouldn't fit into the trial. A small percentage of patients had a significant burn injury, and those patients always get flooded with fluid, as we know, and they excluded uh, several pregnant patients as well. So that's kind of the exclusion criteria as well. As far as the methods are concerned, eligible patients were randomized in a one-to-one ratio uh, to receive either restricted intravenous fluid therapy, which we're going to talk about in a second, or standard intravenous fluid therapy. They, of course, could not mask what was happening to the patients, to the clinicians or investigators that were actually in the, on the study, but they were concealed uh, from the data and safety monitoring board, the trial statisticians, and the, the, the committee that actually wrote the paper. So the, the people who actually ran the study were blinded, but as you imagine, there's just really no way to do a blinded study when you're, when you're looking at this kind of study. So then as far as the protocol, again, they divided one-to-one into a restrictive fluid group and a uh, standard group. And the restricted group got pretty restricted fluids, basically. So basically intravenous fluid as boluses could only be given under four conditions in the restricted group. One is if they had severe hypoperfusion, which was defined as a lactate level greater than four. So twice what we would consider uh, uh, you know, the, the cutoff point for hypoperfusion, a mean arterial pressure of less than 50. And remember that the goal map in most cases is 65. So that'd be a significantly low mean arterial pressure, again, suggesting significant hypoperfusion. And this was despite the infusion of a vasopressor or, or inotropic agent. If the patient had skin modeling beyond the edge of the kneecap, so again, modeling associated again with hypoperfusion and not getting fluids and, 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 and oxygen to tissues or a low urinary output, um, again, uh, another sign that, that the patient is, is maybe fluid down or hypoperfused if they're not peeing by at least 0.1 mil per kilogram of body weight per hour um, after randomization. So if any of those criteria were fulfilled, they could give us an intravenous bolus of 250 to 500 mils of an isotonic crystalloid, uh, which they didn't uh, specify in the study. And one of the problems of the study, I think, is which one could be given. Um, They could also get intravenous fluids to to replace documented fluid losses. So for example, if the patient had a a drain in their lung, for example, to to, to drain uh, fluid away from the lung, or they were throwing up a lot with a lot of diarrhea, they could document those fluid losses and replace that mill for mill. And that's pretty standard of therapy everywhere. Third, the patient could be given intravenous fluids to correct dehydration or electrolyte deficiency if the enteral route was contraindicated. Or fourth, the patient could be given intravenous fluids to ensure a total daily uh, fluid intake of one liter, which I suspect probably never happened because if, you, if it's anything like my ICU, you're going to get a, at least a liter of fluid just in the piggybacks and drips that we give patients every day. So I, I don't think that probably happened a whole lot. So that was the restricted group. And then in the standard group, they basically just said, yeah, do, a, do what you would normally do, basically. They, they did give recommendations that, that it should follow uh, the uh, 2016 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines as far as hemodynamic factors, again, to, to, to correct dehydration or electrolyte derangements, or again, if uh, the patient was losing fluid uh, to, to maintain fluid losses. But again, they it was just recommendations. They didn't force patients in the standardized arm to, to receive a certain amount of fluid. Uh, they also noted that the patient could also get colloids, usually in the form of albumin, if, if in certain cases, like uh, patients who have ascites, for example, that was removed by paracentesis, we know that albumin is better than saline in those patients. And then, of course, everything else, all other treatments for septic shock, antibiotics, source control, vasopressors. And again, they tried to recommend norepinephrine as the primary vasopressor, because that's what the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines recommend. And the receipt of renal replacement therapy, uh, which is done actually much more commonly in Europe than in the United States. Uh, 
again, was all based on, on the surviving substance campaign guidelines recommendations, but they were only recommendations. And basically in the standardized group, the physicians uh, and clinicians who took care of those patients just did what they would normally do in septic shock patients. Uh, the primary outcome was ambitious. The primary outcome was death within 90 days after randomization and death is fatality and ICU studies is notoriously difficult to find differences in. Uh, in the studies over the last 30 years, we found very, very few interventions that have found a difference in death uh, because so many things influence the, the outcome of mortality. So I, I give kudos to, to the, the trial uh, group for, for shooting for a, a pretty hard outcome. Uh, secondary outcomes included the number of patients who had serious adverse effects in the ICU, and they basically said, you know, new cerebral adverse effects, cardiac adverse effects, and they had a long list of them. Uh, the one I was interested in is a new episode of severe acute kidney injury. So people who developed acute kidney injury uh, in the later stages of, of their sepsis, and they did use the Cadigo uh, scale range of one to three uh, as far as higher levels with, with more severe kidney injury and stuff like that. They looked at the patients, the number of patients with one or more serious adverse events who received intravenous crystalloids in the ICU, the number of days alive without life support, and that included circulatory support. So that would be something like, you know, balloon pumps or LVADs, intravenous mechanical ventilation. So they were off intravenous mechanical ventilation and they were not receiving renal replacement therapy at day, uh, day 90, and the number of days alive and out of the hospital at day 90. So again, I, you know, very hard outcomes. And, and I think things that would be of interest of all uh, critical care clinicians. Stats were excellent. I was uh, impressed. Uh, they, they did a good job. Again, in, in these kind of studies, you're going to have to have some sort of logistic regression analysis or propensity score matching to basically, you know, deal with all the millions of variables that makes people sick in the ICU. And I think they did a pretty good job of doing that. And they also did an intention to treat analysis. They did do a power calculation. And, and given the outcomes of the study, I think that that's pretty important. They estimated that they would need 1,554 patients to see an 80% power to show an absolute risk a between group difference of seven percentage points in 90 day mortality or corresponding to a 15% relative risk reduction. And again, that's, you know, again, I think everybody would agree that 7% less the mortality for any intervention in the ICU would be kind of heralded as, as, as a pretty big deal. And so that's what they found. And again, I, uh, they uh, assumed a 90-day baseline mortality of about 40%, which again is, is what the studies essentially suggest. About 40% of people with septic shock do die from it. So um, again, uh, uh, the logistic regression, what they used is, I thought that was very well done. They did they had numerous stratification variables, including trial site, uh, the presence and absence of cancer, because of course, cancer patients are going to do less well and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they compared the primary outcome adjusted for all these stratification variables. They did have a, a mortality score, and there's numerous scores, as, as many uh, critical care clinicians know. Uh, you know, you have the Apache score, the SOFA score. They, they did look at that and, again, tried to adjust for that focus of infection and the use of systemic uh, glucocorticoids, um, which I think everyone agrees now there's at least some pretty good evidence that suggests in septic shock, especially in patients on pressors, that glucocorticoids do help. And so that, that, though they didn't, they didn't specify that. They did adjust for that in, in the regression analysis which I thought was, was, was pretty well done. So again, overall, I thought, I thought the statistics were, were, were really well, well executed for, for this kind of study. So that's kind of the background. What did they find in the study? Well, we're going to talk about that right after a message from our sponsor, CE Impact. Make sure your pharmacy is staffed up to offer vaccines. If your pharmacists and technicians need immunization administration training, be sure to check out the CE Impact virtual training course. Our training offers virtual classes several times a month, so it's easy to fit into your busy pharmacy schedule. No travel required. Check out the show notes for more details along with a discount code. 
So we're back talking about a paper, uh, uh, really one for the for the ICU clinicians uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at restrictive versus uh, um, uh, basically standard of care fluid analysis or, or fluid uh, um, uh, administration in patients with septic shock. So looking at the baseline characteristics, these are so looking at the baseline characteristics. These are these were pretty sick patients, and patients I would certainly see in my ICU. Mean age was about seventy. Uh, about sixty percent of patients were male. About eighteen percent of the patients had some sort of active cancer going on. Uh, the median time from ICU administration to randomization was about three hours in both arms. I thought that was pretty good. Um, and, and the source of admission, the majority was either the emergency department or the hospital ward. And then the focus of infection, because again, septic shock patients, you know, have to have either presumed or confirmed infection. Interestingly, the majority was gastrointestinal. That might be a little bit different than, than my hospital, where I think we tend to see more urosepsis or sepsis from, from pulmonary sources. But those were all represented, and they were certainly equal be, be, between the arms of, of the study. Mean body weight in both arms was about 78 or so. Uh, plasma lactate was 3.8 and plasma uh, and 3.9. And the uh, mean highest dose of norepinephrine given, and, and most of these patients did receive some sort of pressor, was 0.25 mics per kilogram per minute, which I think, you know, most everybody I know agrees that is, is, is a pretty stiff dose of norepinephrine. Mean volume before anonymization was pretty heavy. So uh, in the restricted fluid group, they got, they had 3,200 mils medium volume in the restricted group before anonymization. And then the standard fluid group um, 1,000 mils. So that's actually one of the, the complicating factors of the study is that in the restricted fluid group, they tended to get a lot more fluid even before they were randomized, and that may influence some of the, some of the outcomes of the study. About 30% of patients received glucocorticoids as well. So as far as the outcomes are concerned, um, um, what they basically found that after not, at 90 days after randomization, uh, there was no difference, basically. Death had occurred in 42.3% of patients in the restricted fluid group and 42.1% of patients in the standard fluid group. So essentially no difference between the two. Um, uh, I suppose I should say before we even get into the, in, into the results that, as you might imagine, the restricted group did at the end of, of the day receive um, uh, much less fluids. This was about 1,800 mils after being uh, enrolled in the trial compared to about 4,000 mils in the standard fluid group. Again, about what I would expect to see, perhaps a little bit lower than, than in my ICU, again, where we tend to give lots of drips and stuff. And we often don't count all those fluids when we're talking about that sort of stuff. But again, uh, at not, the primary outcome in 90 days after random there was no difference in death between the two groups, about 42% in both groups. When they talked about serious adverse effects, um, again, there was no difference between the restricted fluid group and the standard fluid group with both groups, about 30% of patients having some sort of either cerebral, cardiovascular, or renal uh, serious or adverse effect. Um, uh, most notably, there was no difference in acute kidney injury between the two, which I thought was quite interesting. So uh, the bottom line was that, they, that after all of this and all the secondary analysis, they really didn't find any difference between the restricted fluid group and the standard fluid group. So the authors say, well, you know, so basically in our clinical trial, we observed no significant differences of 90-day mortality or serious adverse effects. Um, and they found that they had similar durations of living without life support and hospital discharge, and that, that basically there was just no difference. They note that there was an absolute increase or decrease between the two groups of about five percentage points in the confidence interval. And so they felt like that that meant that, that any uh, serious difference that was statistically unlikely. The problem that I have with that is that this was not designed to be a non-inferiority study. So, I mean, you know, even though they try and kind of talk in the, in the discussion about how, well, you know, if you take a look at our 95% confidence intervals between the, the outcomes, uh, they were, you know, very close to each other, but they didn't really design the study to be a non-inferiority study. So it's really kind of hard to say this. I mean, I was always kind of taught that, that really you can't say there's no difference between two groups unless you initially design the study to be a non-inferiority study. So I think what they can say is they didn't find a difference and their study was certainly powered to show a difference to this, to the point they were looking at 
they found one, but I'm, I'm still not entirely convinced that that you can say that that they're equal to each other or not inferior to each other. So they note, and I agree that the that the that the results would probably be generalizable to, to most Western countries, including Europe, um, and I would argue in the United States as well. So um, you know they point out that, and I think one of the big strikes again the against the study was that the, the patients in the restricted fluid arm in just just out of the gate received more fluids than the patients in the standard arm. Now, of course, that kind of evened out and actually went the other way by the time the patients had been enrolled. But again, you know, did that explain why there wasn't a big difference? Because up front, the, the, the restricted group just got more fluid. And so that kind of evened each other out. I mean, it would have been interesting to see, you know, that I don't know how you could have done this in this study, but it would have been interesting to see, you know, could they have restricted total amount of fluids basically even pre-randomization? But again, how would you do that? I'm not entirely sure. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the, the, the outcomes they talk about that, you know, again, that that happened. As you might imagine, there were some protocol violations, which, which is certainly going to occur in an ICU study that might have affected the results as well. Uh, they note that the subgroup analyses were probably underpowered, but that's certainly true as well. Um, um, you know, um, but that's true in actually most studies. So I'm, I'm not sure that that's a huge, it's a huge strike. So their conclusions are that, you know, basically in this study, there's, there's little data to suggest that that standard uh, fluid resuscitation is, is better or worse than a restricted therapy. Um, and again, you know, the, the question would be, you know, the, the issue of just giving lots of fluids to patients just because we can, uh, do we really need to be doing that? And so the, I think that the authors kind of argue that we probably don't need Need to be hitting people with so much fluid. Now, I would have liked to have seen a couple things in the study, but I, again, I think I kind of said with the when I, my big concerns with the trial are it's not a non-inferiority study, and yet they're, they're kind of painting it as that, and this difference in fluid pre-randomization. Pre uh, but I would have liked to have seen, and, and maybe someone will ask them in a letter to the editor, you know, the amount of diuretic used, because again, if somebody gets a lot more fluid, we're going to tend to give them a lot more diuretics to get, to get the fluid off. And as you know, diuretics, we can over-diurese people, and that's where they, I think they get in trouble with kidney injury. I really wish they had uh, done a better job defining respiratory failure um, after the septic shock resolved and to see, you know, again, was there a significant difference in respiratory therapy? They did uh, talk about the number of patients on steroids, but it would be interesting, you know, how long were they on steroids? Was there a different dosage? Things like that. Again, we're not entirely sure what, you know, what dose of corticosteroids is exactly correct. The surviving sepsis campaign guidelines recommend kind of 50 to 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone Q8, but lots of places do things differently. So that would have been interesting to see. Uh, maybe a post hoc analysis would, would help us with that. And then the type of presser used. Again, they, they note that the norepinephrine was used mostly in patients, but you know, were they were any of these patients on basopressin or any of these patients on angiotensin two? All of those could influence the outcome as well. And I the other big strike I think of this study is they only really looked at bolus fluids or or maintenance fluids. And again, as I've said a couple of times in this podcast, um, I I can tell you that when somebody is getting antibiotics and stress ulcer prophylaxis and you know other medications and pressors, and if they're on uh, you know uh, a CRT, they get fluids with that. If they're on, um, uh, if they have cardiovascular support, they're getting fluids for that. Yeah, the bottom line is all those drips and stuff add up really, really quickly. And, um, you know, it would have been very nice if they would have taken all that into account and, and not just looked at, at the bolus amount of fluid patients were getting, but trying to take into account the amount of fluids and the drips and, and the piggybacks that the patients were getting as well. So uh, they didn't do that. And again, you know, it, was there a significant difference between those two groups there? That might have made a role as well. So, I mean, my kind of bottom line with the study is that, you know, it's an interesting study. And, and I think this does, you know, add to the, the literature that suggests that we probably don't need to be flooding patients with, with fluid after they've received their initial bolus, that I think we, we can try and, and, and basically look at the patient, which is something we should always do, and, and really try to give 
you know, bolus fluids instead of just turning on lactated ringers at 150 mils an hour, which is something that I certainly see done a lot, and just walk away. And I think I think there has been a movement. I think even in my hospital to move a little bit more towards boluses. You know, you know, okay, instead of giving, you know, instead of just turning on a drip and walking away of of, of isotonic fluid, we're going to give 250 mils here. We're going to have 500 mils there for specific reasons, you know, for specific reasons to do that. And assuming that the patient is going to get most of the other maintenance fluids and all the other drips and piggybacks they're getting, that might be a better way to go. Um, like I said, I'm, uh, the study is large enough um, that I'm sure some postdoc analyses are going to be done. And, and it'll be an interesting to see uh, which, you know, things like, again, diuretic used and, and things like that and see if there's a significant difference between them uh, after the fact. But bottom line is that, that this adds to the literature that, that restrictive uh, fluid therapy and not just giving, uh, flooding people the fluid when they have septic shock is probably uh, a, a reasonable way to go in most patients. So that's it for this week of, of uh, Game Changers. Again, thank you for listening to us, uh, hit that like and subscribe button. Uh, be sure and head over to ceimpact.com. And as I said before, if you've got a, got a request, we, we take requests here at, at Game Changer. So contact me with, with an interesting uh, subject or a paper, and we'll take a look at doing it. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.